welcome to The Current Thing with me, Nick Dixon, where we talk about politics, the culture war, and anything else that might come up. And today it's probably going to be quite a lot of the latter because our guest has had such a varied life. He's been a psychotherapist, a hypnotist. He's worked with Paul McKenna on his very popular books. And now he has a book of his own, which I have here. It's called The Bug in Our Thinking. And it's by our guest, Mr. Hugh Wilborn. Hugh, thanks for doing the show. Nick, thank you for having me on. No worries. So I've been reading your book on the train and I'm annoyed because I was just telling you before, I've been, uh, my, I'm trying to sell my house and look for a house. It's, it's a complete nightmare. So I'm not like my usual ultra-diligent self. So I haven't yet finished it. So I haven't yet found what the bug in our thinking is. I can tell you the book is very well yeah. written and entertaining. And, uh, and I was easily just getting through it on the train. So it's great. But, um, but I haven't quite found the answer yet. Do, do you give the answer at the end of the book? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you know, it's a funny kind of a book because... In, 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 the, um, in the marketing world of publishing, there's this section called smart thinking, right? So that's, that started with stuff like Chaos years ago by James Gleek, and then all that Malcolm Gladwell stuff, and, um, and James Sirowiecki, and Thinking Fast and Slow. So that's smart thinking, right? And, and mostly that's work by journalists, and they take weird, geeky academic stuff and make it accessible. They say, here it is. It's basically an introduction, it's an explanation. And um, my book's kind of the opposite, I have to say. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not explaining stuff because I'm pointing out what goes wrong when we explain things. We imagine we understand stuff and we make a lot of quite poor decisions really on that basis. I mean, you can look around you now and think, this doesn't look very well planned, does it? It's not like you know, a super efficient 21st century future-oriented successful society. I mean, wherever you're standing, it looks like chaos, doesn't it? I thought you meant my Um, podcast for a second there. I was was mildly insulted. But you mean the wider (laughs) culture. I mean the wider world. It's a bit of a mess, isn't it? You know, it doesn't matter which side of it you stand on. You can think, well, this is a bit crazy, isn't it? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean... I please, you know, if you, if you think I'm wrong, go for it. But, no, no, the uh, only time people might have thought you were wrong was during um, COVID where people started to feel like, oh, it, you know, it's all planned and it's the, it's the WEF, but you're sort of more on the, it's the sort of chaos. Oh, that particular thing that, so I actually wrote a blog about that and it was called Cock Up Conspiracy or Murmuration. So the two theories, the very well-known theories about government are Cock Up and Conspiracy. It, it, they don't know what they're doing, that's Cock Up conspiracy oh they do know what they're doing they're deliberately doing all of this right and and i my take is uh, it's probably closer to the former but there is a pattern to it because the same stuff happened all over the world and my explanation is that it's a murmuration so that's how starlings move you know when you see a beautiful big cloud of birds just making these extraordinary shapes in the sky it looks like it's choreographed. I mean, it's astonishing. But it isn't. There are just three basic rules that govern that, which is go in the same direction as the other birds, don't bump into another bird, and aim for the center of the group of birds. And that will, that will create these beautiful spontaneous shapes. And um, I would have to look back at my own blog, I'm afraid to say, and remind myself of exactly which six rules it was. And I can do that very quickly. Um, but the, my, essentially the way it, it seems to me that all that worked is there were um, fear, greed, overvaluing abstraction, 
emotional incompetence, cognitive inertia and groupthink. And that will generate what we suffered for a couple of years, very briefly. Hmm. Interesting. All right, but, it, but, so, but so you think it was, it was those factors. But in the book, you're saying you don't look for conclusions. I remember there's a part where you say that you, with stories, you insist on there being no moral. That was an interesting uh, point. And, uh, and one thing you said to me once as well, that you, were, you moved into hypnotism to actually dehypnotize people. So these things all seem so broadly related to me. Yeah, um, the, <laughs> it is. They're all broadly related. They're interwoven, and the job of my book is to take you on a little, a little um, adventure, really, like a roller coaster through psychotherapy, through philosophy, and through storytelling, and above all through stories, because uh, you'll notice in the book there are a bunch of my stories, stuff that happened to me, uh, stories of professionals, philosophers, psychotherapists, and then some traditional stories. And the reason, when, I, when I'm teaching storytelling, I have two very strong rules. No titles and no morals. Why wouldn't you have a title? Because it's kind of a giveaway. You know, if I have a title, I don't know, The Red Killer, and then I say, you know, Nick was a handsome guy, but he had a secret. We think, oh, well, he's probably The Red Killer, isn't he? You know, it, it gives it all away, right? On the, and equally, if I, if I say, here's, a, here's the moral of the story is, I've kind of reduced this wonderful holographic jewel to a one-liner. Like, why bother to tell the story? I say, here's the moral, mate. Bang. And really, a great story, I'm not in charge of what the story means. If I tell you a story, you might tell it to a mate and say, and it really made me think blah, 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 blah. And another friend could hear the same story and be touched in a completely different way. Stories, that's how stories work. We, we kind of imagine, oh, I understood that. And then years later, you might think, oh, no, I didn't really understand it, did I? There's more to it. So I, I'm a great fan of stories. So what are, you, what are you hoping people will get out of the book other than sort of great stories and uh, it's very entertaining so far but will, if I, when I finally finish it will I have the, the, the answer to the bug in our thinking or is it, is it not quite like that okay I'm going to give you um, I'll read to you and this isn't really giving it away I'm going to give you the first line of the last chapter the last chapter is called A Plausible Conclusion by the way and here's the first line there is no big answer um, Damn it. But you'll, you'll, you kind of get there as you go through the book. You realize, no, there can't possibly be a big answer. Because, again, the world's not like that. Look around you. What is the big answer? It, it just isn't like that. Okay? The world, here's another way of putting it. We love to describe the world using you know, physics and maths. We love categories. We love clear boundaries and so on. And those are great for, I don't know, building bridges or uh, in architecture, building cars. They're not so, they're not, they don't occur in nature. Nature itself is fractal. It, 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 it is infinitely complex. So we like to put clear boundaries on it for our convenience and to, to build things. But reality itself is always just that little bit more weird and a little bit, more subtle and indeed we ourselves are a little bit more weird and a little bit more subtle than that 
So the job really, you could say, is to get away from the, the bugs in our thinking, the delusions that have been dominating the way we think, and come back to reality, which is pretty strange, I have to say. Yeah, and one of the, the points you make is um, you're against literacy. Now, I thought I was a reactionary because I'm always trying to take the vote back about 100 years. I'm trying to do all sorts of things. But then I, Hugh comes along, he's like, hey, whoa, whoa, this whole writing thing, I'm not sure about, guys. This is... And your point was something like, you know, well, you can explain the point, but it's basically you thought there was a more authenticity and, and sort of efficacy to the spoken word versus the, the, the written word. Yeah, I mean, you've just repeated the mistake I spent about five years in. So, which no, I'm not against literacy, no. <laughs> but when I first came across the problems that arise from literacy, I did exactly that. I said, oh, God, it's terrible. It's done this to our minds. It's made an awful mess. It's screwed us up. And everybody came back at me going, you don't be ridiculous. That's completely absurd. How could you possibly do that? I mean, you know, Shakespeare, T.S. Eliot, whoever you want to mention, J.K. Rowling, you know, the, the, the joy that people have had through literacy and the, the and, I mean, it's the fundamental technology. Look around you. Everything that you can see that isn't natural, it's, it's been made possible more or less by literacy with the possible exception of a handmade bookcase. Like, all of technology is founded on, on literacy. So it's, it's clearly wonderful. My point is that it's not 100% wonderful and 0% problematic. There are a few problems. And what I realized when I stopped being over-enthusiastic was that there's nothing in... You know, it's not that literacy is bad. It's just that our education is unbalanced because everything gets funneled through a literacy-based education. I mean, now you can do a degree in whatever, you know, football, nursing. I mean, things that are profoundly physical or profoundly emotional get funneled through books. As though this one... Imagine everything was written in, I don't know, Fortran or Basic or C or Ruby on Rails or something. I mean, that's nuts, isn't it? Right? But but we take it for granted. We think, oh, yeah, of course we should be able to do that. That's how you learn things. And that's not true. We, there are three other very important pillars to, the, to our education. So, to, to, for those who haven't read even half the book, the point I'm making about education is literacy is great, but it's one quarter of a real education. A real education has four pillars. Literacy apprenticeship, storytelling, and experience. And how do you know that's true? Well, it's not because I've told you. You can think about your own life. Think about what you're good at, what you do, and ask yourself, am I good at it because I read about it in a book? Or am I good at it because my auntie taught me? Or because I learned from this brilliant lady at school? Or because... I worked my ass off for goodness how's long, or because I made all those terrible mistakes and I've learned from them. Or, or, or somebody told me this thing that I've never really forgotten, which was really helpful. Da, 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 da. And I would think that you can think, I mean, here you are, you're a successful journalist, you've got this, that, and the other going. How did you do that? Did you go to school and read about it in a book? I don't think so. <laughs> right. Well, I, yeah. And I'm not even really a journalist. I got into it by doing 11 years of, of stand-up comedy and then ending up on, on, the, on the telly because someone saw me and asked me to go on a show. So, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I, I, yeah, the, mo the things I've learned have all been, yeah, the most worthwhile things are not from education. Of course, they are from experience. And um, experience is hard, isn't it? And it takes a long time. So people, people don't necessarily like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We all, we all want to um, avoid it if we can, you know, and cheat. Yeah, yeah. We all want to cheat. Everyone. And you, Skip to you the quote point. something really interesting from Plato that he said he wouldn't want to write down his best ideas because then they could be misrepresented after his death. That was interesting. Not even after his death. It's just like if he writes them down and, you know, wanders off, goes off to Sicily and somebody reads his, his ideas, he's not there to say, no, no, I didn't mean that. No, you, no, no, look, this is what I really meant, okay? So we, if, if you, um, if I misunderstand you or vice versa, we can correct each other right here and now. I go, no, Nick. In fact, I just did, didn't I? You said uh, literacy is bad. You quoted me as saying literacy is bad. And I said, no, 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 that wasn't quite right. So we're, because we're having a conversation, we can make sure that we're continuing to understand each other. Whereas if you just quoted that, misquoted, I have to say, out of my book and believed you'd got it right, that could go on. You know, and, and like Plato, I'd be going, damn, I'm not there to defend it. I'm not there to make it clear. That was his point. Right. And then my point, my point is, hang on, Plato is considered to be the father of Western philosophy, right, on account of what he wrote. And Plato himself says, I wouldn't write down, write down my best ideas, which means the whole of Western philosophy is based on his second rate or third rate or not very important and certainly not his best ideas. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because there's that meme that only 1% of ancient literature has survived, which Elon Musk uh, posted the other day. But yeah, the idea that we actually haven't got Plato's best ideas, this was his uh, B-sides. Although to just defend myself as well, when I said you were against literacy and I thought I was actually, it was a mere joke. So it wasn't literally what I thought you meant either. So I can also clarify that. You've got to watch out of me because there's a lot of jokes, little subtle jokes. Um, all right. That's very interesting. So, uh, so, and when you, I'm quite interested in the fact that you were I mean, coming off the book slightly, but it is in the book as well that you were you did hypnotism yeah. and you sort of fell into that. And it, so I don't really know if I, I went to, I tried hypnotism once and couldn't really. I'm just was too tense and couldn't really get into it. Maybe I don't fully even understand what it is. But you, but I mean, how does it work? Mm. You, and how come you got into hypnotism? And then I was going to ask you about the Paul McKenna stuff as well, because that's interesting. Uh, well, some of it's in the book. I explain it. Uh, I don't explain it. I tell the story, actually. I tell the story of how I got into hypnosis. Um, essentially, I, I hypnotized somebody accidentally, which was kind of embarrassing because I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, then later, I met a hypnotherapist actually at a party, and I said, uh, "What on earth did I do? You know, what happened there?" And she kind of explained a little bit. And then I said, "Well, I want to know more about this. You know, if I did it accidentally, what happened? Maybe I could do more of that." So I, I trained as a hypnotist. Uh, or hi well. I was interested in hypnosis, and the only way then, really, and probably still now, to train in hypnosis was to train as a hypnotherapist, right? using it for, for therapeutic purposes. So that's what I did, and I became a hypnotherapist. And like, like everybody else who becomes a therapist, I really needed therapy, I just didn't know. <laughs> I thought, I'm gonna, I can help people, haha. <laughs> um, I was pretty clueless and pretty young. Um, but, you know, after being a a hypnotherapist for I don't know a couple of decades I I got a bit better at being me <laughs> um, and I was fortunate that uh, you know not really me but the gods were on my side you know I, I, I made some happy uh, comments from my 
unconscious, I would say, that perhaps helped people. Um, so why do I say dehypnotize people? Because essentially there's a there are endless, um, endless, endless theories around psychotherapy. It's one of the reasons I went back to philosophy. But a commonplace idea is that when something difficult happens, we, we deal with it in, in two or three ways. We, we can distort, delete, or deny it. So if, you, if something really horrible happens, you, or you make, even worse, imagine you do something really embarrassing, right? And your, your natural reaction is, is kind of to, oh, I don't even want to remember that. You know, we turn away from feelings that are really painful. And if we can't turn away, we try and anesthetize ourselves from it. We feel like, oh, it's, I'm not going to notice that horrible feeling. Yeah? Or we say, no, it's not happening. I don't mind at all. It's completely fine. Um, I don't care. And that's distorting, denying, and deleting. And, and actually, we do it a lot. Right? Now, if it's a little thing, it doesn't really matter. But if it's a big thing, then we kind of make a habit of it. And the next time something else, else comes along that looks a little bit like that, well, it'll flip us into it. We'll distort, deny, delete. So our protection mechanism that stopped us being overwhelmed by some trauma when we were kids becomes a, a problem because when we're getting older and we, aren't, we can't meet the world as it is, we distort, deny, delete. It's like we block, no, I'm not going to see that. I don't want to see that. Yeah? And that's, I mean, we all do it all the time. Uh, but most of the time we kind of bodge it and we get by. But people go to therapy because they find that they either feel something or do something that they don't want to feel or they don't want to do. I mean, why else would you spend 100 quid an hour talking to somebody? You know, if I can fix it, I'm not going to talk to you for an extremely large sum of money. So it's only because I'm doing something or feeling something I don't want to do or feel, I'll go and talk to somebody else. And I have to say, that's brave. It, it's brave to go to some total stranger and say, I'm not doing very well at being me. Interesting. I went, I went along for um, health anxiety where I just had this thing where I was just obsessed with it. every time I got somewhere, I'm like, oh, I think it's, I'm dying and it's this particular thing and, and all this. And so I, that's, I went for that specific reason. What would you do with someone who had that if you were in, if you, when you, if you were still doing your therapist uh, clinical practice, as Peterson would call it? Uh, well, the first thing I'd do is I'd say to that person, um, look, what, what you say to me, I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody else. What I say to you, you can tell anybody you want to. So the first thing is confidentiality. The second thing is, um, I, 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 I would say I, I want to know more about the context. I haven't got a box of, you know, 25 tools and you're definitely going to, oh, look, you're a number 17. Boom. You know, I, I tend to respond to... Ericsson, I put it in the book, Ericsson used to say, always use what the client brings. So, sure, I have some experience, I've got some ideas, one immediately came to mind, but the, uh, it's, it's really, who are you, where's the energy with you, what's going on, and, oh, here's a one-liner that's helpful, what's the least, the thing, what's the smallest thing I can do that will make a useful difference? Hmm. Because I... Whatever you come with, whatever your problem is, my goal is that you should leave 
happy to face the challenges that life offers. Now, you're not going to win them all, but if you're happy to face the challenges that life offers, frankly, that's as good as it gets. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so you might have a, like you, your particular hypochondriac anxiety. Okay, I, we can. there's a bunch of things we can do with that. It's not uncommon, by the way. And one of the reasons, da-da, um, is because of the, a commonplace bug in our thinking, right? Um, but the, the, the answer, your particular answer, will be maybe similar to other people's. But I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that there's a, you know, a box of six answers that fix everything. Okay, quick quick attempt to get an extra bit of free therapy there, but yeah, f- fair enough. Uh, it's, some of the things are quite similar to what I was I was told. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if I should get onto culture war stuff because uh, you, the fact that you're on this podcast probably means you have some interest in the in the culture war. You probably wouldn't be speaking to me just how it tends to go. But at the start, you outlined your your views on what happened during COVID, which we could return to because it's pretty interesting. You had those six points, but what I ask a lot of guests is how do we win the culture war if they even accept that framing which some don't but what is your take on this whole culture war that's emerged and how can we get out of it um uh, well i i suspect i think implicit in my book right there's a there's a the first you must remember it and this isn't giving much away but the very first chapter includes a story somebody came to see me and um, she, uh, she, um, she was pretty socially isolated and I put it to her that she'd built herself a very safe space, a very safe castle she was protected, she didn't let people get close to her, she was very polite but always distant, yeah. you know and she had her set ideas, that was it, that was the way the world was. And I put it to her that, that, that she was pretty safe in there, but she was also pretty lonely. Because the same walls that kept strangers and dangers away also kept lovers and friends away. And I told her about me learning to windsurf. Now, I'm utter, there's many things I'm pretty rubbish at, and windsurfing you know, I'm definitely rubbish at. So I've had a bunch of lessons and I never seem to really know. Yeah, you it. talked about all but the I different th- stages you can fall off. There's about 10 different stages where you can fall off. And- that's right. You keep falling off. And that's what you do to learn. You just keep falling off and gradually you get through each stage. But the essence of it, by the time that you've learned to windsurf, you can go out in a hell of a gale, right? And survive. And why are you surviving? Because you are relating intimately to your environment. You know, you're using the wind and the waves and all, you're exposed to them and engaging with them. Whereas if you're in a castle, you're cut off. So, back to the culture wars. It seems to me that, again, whatever your position, people tend to retreat to their castles. They tend to say, well, you know, the answer to this has got to be rational argument. Come give me a proper rational argument. That's the answer. Or other people will say, it's all about respecting something or other. You know, you've got to respect my difference or my belief or my whatever the hell it is, right? And to me, those are like different types of castles. They're effectively categories of thought. And one of the issues that we see that comes up in the bug in our thinking 
is the way that categorical thinking has taken over our minds, as opposed to narrative thinking or orality-based thinking. So, I mean, take something like, I mean, what's the hot potato at the moment is the the gender Mm -hmm. thing, you know, transgender, whatever. And there's a, people argue about, you know, uh, identity on the one hand, you know, I identify as X and that's not up for grabs kind of thing. And uh, on the other, they're saying, well, you know, biology says there's this, that and the other and nothing else, right? And to me, I was, okay, those are good, those are um, interesting points, but I would say a really, really interesting question is like, um, what's it like? If, if you go back to the beginning of it, what the hell is it like to suddenly think if you're a girl, I'm not really a girl, or if you're a boy, I'm not really a boy? I mean, that's really strange. And, and how come people do it? How do you do it? I mean, really, how do you do that? And how do you think, I mean, what would it be to think, really, I'm a girl? Because what kind of experience do you have of that? You just don't have it. If, if, you, if you haven't had a period, if you don't have female genitalia, it, it's, you quite clearly can't have the experience that people have who do have periods, who do have female genitalia. So you're thinking something, and, and how do you do... I mean, I, to me, I would think, well, that's, that's a very good question to hang out with. And if, you, and if you have got that question, it seems to me pretty crazy to say, well, now I'm, I, I'm not this, so I'm going to jump into a different box straight away. I'm definitely not a boy, so I'm one of those, or I'm one of those. And in fact, the experience we hear, the stories we hear from young people is that, oh, I thought I was this, but now ne- tomorrow I'm that, and I'm this, that, and the other. It's a kind of, you know, I'm, I'm whatever, I'm na- non-binary, no, I'm asexual, no, I'm pansexual, whatever. They, and, and, and they keep taking each one really seriously. No, this is the box I really believe, b- belong in. Oh, no, this is the box I really belong in. Oh, no, this is the box I really belong in. Well, maybe the problem is thinking you belong in a box. Okay? So that's, so I'd, I'd really... I, I think we shouldn't rush ahead to go and have a big culture war. I should hang out a bit and say, what on earth? I mean, that must be very weird and very, very strange. And what's happening? Yeah. And, and alongside that, there's another thought which has just uh, slipped to my mind. I'll see if I can get it back again. Um, oh, yeah. From roughly the age of, I don't know, 11, 12, depending on when you hit puberty, to about 18, 19, it's crazy. I mean, it's a hormone storm. It doesn't matter whether you're a boy or a girl or what you think you are. It's pretty damn wild in those at that time. You know, you're, you're, you may not want to, right, but your biological body is changing in many ways and you're having these weird experiences that you haven't had before. And I think there's a kind of lack of, what's the word, recognition of just how spooky and weird that is. Because people are offered all these explanations. I mean, I was teaching in a university the other day, and this kid was saying, oh, because I'm an extrovert, and another one said, oh, I'm an introvert. And I'm thinking, you're bloody 18. You know, what are you doing with all this kind of Jungian stuff, you know? You should just be saying, I'm angry, or I'm, I'm crazy, or I'm, I don't know what the hell's happening. You know, that's, it, it, it's so much jumping to conclusions that I think that that's going to provoke a lot of people 
saying, well, that's not true. And then, and then off you're on, you know, you're away off in your culture wars and so forth. But I would kind of want to get earlier and say, let's hang out with the weirdness a bit more and see what's really happening. So really, it sounds like the whole Western world needs therapy. This is what I'm hearing. They need to, I mean, because when you say, um, so you refer to the, the feeling that, of feeling like you're the other sex, which is very, very odd, or they would say gender. And it's something like Andrew Doyle has referred to it as a sexed soul. So the idea that you could have a sort of female soul as a man, that's really what you're saying. Because as you've pointed out, you can't know what it's like to have periods and so on. So you're imagining a female soul. And as you also point out, very strange that you're, that you're, you're not this one, but you're definitely this other thing that you haven't experienced. So that certainty is very, very odd. And I think we've seen this Elliot Page person who's been on Twitter a lot lately saying how joyful he or she is now that she's gone from being a girl to a boy and but doesn't seem joyful at all as many people have pointed out and so it's, po- it's probably not going to end very well because the idea that you're a troubled person then you change you know I mean, this, even now i'm thinking we probably can't even say this on youtube because it's so censored on this topic at the moment but the idea that you change to the other sex or gender where you can't change sex you change it and that solves all your problems very very unlikely so yeah the the, the question but the question there that emerges for me is why now? Why all this confusion now when people didn't have this? Is it a fad? Is it pushed by media? Is it pushed by academia? Why suddenly the massive uptick in people thinking they're the other gender? Well, it's, it's almost certainly multifactorial. In other words, there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, one of the reasons for the, the great craziness of, of modernity um, is the internet. So... In, in, in the bug in our thinking, I talk about the impact of literacy, but the internet is another technological change, like the impact of writing, that uh, we're right in the middle of, and has massively, massively skewed public debate, and, then, and hence private debate, because the two aren't separate. You know, I am part of the public, and the public is part of me. So, the inter- now, what the internet does is it exaggerates the extremes and it underrepresents the middle. So, uh, for example, people are likely to comment on right on, on us here now if we're talking about the culture wars or something you know contro- controversial like that. Whereas if we spend the next half an hour talking about the the, the irritating, annoying problems of trying to sell your house or buy your house or move house which pretty much everybody knows about, and it's a nightmare, and, you know, go for it, and good luck to you. But really, we don't want... Neither of us particularly want to talk about that. But nobody really wants to listen to it either. It's just not controversial. It's not interesting, right? The way I put it is, you may remember when you were, like, seven years old, primary school, playing on the playground, right? And you were running around with your mates. And there was always a few kids who were really noisy and always got into fights and arguments... And they're the ones all over the internet. The rest of us just running around, playing with our friends, you know, doing hopscotch or, or playing at being cowboys and Indians or whatever you do these days. And the and we're not going to go on the internet about it. It's just like we just had a reasonable afternoon. It's the people who get super offended or super angry. They love to be all over the internet. That's interesting. Now I've ended up on the internet as my job really in in the culture war as a kind of living by accident from trying to be a comedian and that avenue being largely blocked due to political issues suddenly your immutable characteristics prevent you from certain opportunities so then you go that's weird and then 
because the comedy industry is so woke, for want of a better word, it's pushed all these comedians into talking about culture. You know, it's almost like we're tr- we, we, to try and win back our culture, we have to fight these political battles. That's how I've ended up in it. Because, yeah, it's not that like I want to spend all day on the internet. And as a sensitive person, I don't particularly like being called horrendous names every day because of the channel I'm on. And the, the names are, you know, they're pretty much daily called some variation of the C word or something. And it, it's not particularly pleasant. But it's a lot of us have ended up there. I, I agree with generally with what you're saying. It's the loud people at the edges and, and, and the, the extremists. But now I feel like a lot of us have had to, in defense, get into it, even if we wouldn't be predisposed to that, even if we were trying to do normal jobs or trying to be comedians or something. We've sort of been forced into it. Yeah, I, I agree. There's, well, there's also, uh, uh, you know, everything has its pushback. You know, for every light, there's a darkness. For every darkness, there's a light. So as you get this imbalance, you get other people being affected by that and, and I think you've made a good good example I mean I think it's really really interesting that um, it, 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 there's a sort of high level of inversion all over the western world certainly which is that um, you know politicians are on the whole now a complete joke I mean everyone knows they're wastrels they're, they're completely without principle they're just and they're incompetent and they're so mediocre they can't think properly. I mean, they're really terrible people. But, but put bluntly, they're clowns. Whereas the clowns have now become politicians. Right? If you want to make some really good political point, you, you get yourself a comedy show. So what's that guy called in the States? JP, JP yeah. Sears, right? So he says he's a comic. But basically all he does is he makes political commentary but with, with a certain wit to him. And... Uh, and and perhaps we could say the same of you and your and your gang that we're that you're commenting. You, you you started as a comedian, but you end up being the only people who will say, "Hey, the emperor's not wearing clothes today." Oh, and he wasn't yesterday either. And looks like he hasn't got any clothes planned for tomorrow. You know who is this dude? Right. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. It, it, that is what I try and do. I'm, I'm especially in my podcast with Toby Young, the Weekly Skeptic, and on GB News on Headliners, where it's all comedians talking about the news. We've actually run into a the fault lines of this with um, today on Twitter in the last few days with Lewis Schaefer, who's one of our comedians on headliners because he's had 151 Ofcom complaints and a lot of uh, Twitter complaints from the kind of centrist dads of Twitter who seem to spend a lot of time on there because he, he said that COVID didn't exist. But people don't understand that Lewis is kind of, um, and I've defended him on these grounds and people have said this is a ridiculous defense saying that he's not serious. How can you use that as a defense? Well, because he's a comedian who's living his life as a kind of multi-decade comedic performer, especially him. I'm doing commentary with a bit of wit in the way you outlined. He's doing like a full-on comedic, almost anti-comedy performance his whole life, where it's a kind of, it's a persona that he's just sort of always comic. You know, he says things like he doesn't believe in blood pressure and he thinks water dehydrates you. I mean, that's an absolutely absurd yeah. claim. Okay. But then uh, there's all these people take him seriously and complain to Ofcom. This guy is so confident. I'm like, you mean Lewis who thinks that water dehydrates you? Come on, guys. And then they're going, well, that's ridiculous. You're, so we shouldn't take him seriously. Why is he on GB News? I'm like, well, it's all comedians on the show. It's a comedic show. But I suppose this is where we run into trouble now. People saying we have to be serious all the time. So that's interesting. But it's another example of, of, of this inversion, right? The police have stopped being police, right? They don't bother to catch burglars and, uh, you know, all that nonsense. They don't do that. They're far, far too busy. Uh, I don't know what they do. But they certainly don't do what they used to. So the, and, and so there aren't, the police aren't doing the police. So who are doing the police? The public are doing the police. Your, 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 your Twitter warriors are policing you like hell. You know, the police are going to come after you. We're in charge now. So 
if, if we step, go back another step, we say, well, what, you know, what's the big deal? What's going on globally or in the West? You know, what, what's happening? And I think the clue is, look at the, all these big words that people throw around uh, on the internet where they're going to teach you, you know, you can learn all about it every day. So leadership, science, community, education, right? These are, you know, there are a billion courses in all of that. And they're exactly what's missing. And most obviously is leadership and fundamentally authority. So our politicians have no authority at all. They're obviously, you know, make-weight midwits. And they, they don't have personal authority. And collectively, we have given away our authority. So for years, I've been making the point that, you know, if you've got a pension, you've given away control over your own bloody money. Right? And the government has encouraged you to do so with various tax, break, tax breaks. So who gets the benefit of that money? Well, the number one beneficiary of your money is not you. It's the pension company. It's the brokers and administrators who take a slice every time they buy and sell something. Right? You might complain, oh, I haven't got as much as I thought I was going to get when I retire. Well, that's right, because you didn't take any responsibility for your money. You gave it to somebody else. And you might complain that, oh, well, you know, I don't like really what they're teaching my children in school. Well, that's right, because you gave away the responsibility of teaching your children to the school. Now, some people think that's a virtue. You know, we should be giving away all our responsibility to other people. But why would they take it more seriously than you? But, well, what's the incentive? Why should they do that? And I don't think there is much of an incentive. Perhaps in the good old or bad old days, you know, when people believed in whatever they used to believe in, which they simply don't anymore, they would have had a sense of duty or obligation. But that's really old school. You know, that's, you know nowadays it's all about self-promotion and... and uh, um, you know, self-realization, all these extraordinary ideas, but without taking any responsibility and without taking both the the benefits and the disbenefits of authority. So it's it's everywhere, yeah. and the very few people who don't fall into that are considered deeply weird. Yeah, loads of interesting stuff there. So. When you talk about the police not being police anymore, a lot of people have talked about anarcho-tyranny being the state that we have now, which is where the, the criminals are not punished and the non-criminals, the average citizen, is punished, and a sort of classic example. And when you talk about people having to police themselves, a classic example of this was the Just Stop Oil thing where the Just Stop Oil idiots were in the road and the builder trying to get to work moved them. The police who had been standing idly by pounced on him the people are allowed to stand in the road, but he's the one. And you go, well, that's a narco-tyranny. You can't have a society like that, I claim, because you're punishing the, the just people and you're leaving the criminals who were the protesters in that case, so-called protesters, really kind of public nuisance. But, and then when you say about schools, so would you, it's sounding a bit like our Dominic Frisbee episode, which was very libertarian. So do you believe in, would you try and homeschool then or, or, or what? Because that, the, practically it's very difficult for people, even though logically it's the only move now. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the logical move is to gather together a group of like-minded people. I mean, like, homeschooling your own children one-on-one -on -one is, is weird. I mean, that, that's really, and incredibly difficult. I mean, who, who the hell knows that much? You know, it's just not feasible. Um, but the... Uh, I, 
I can see there are a lot of problems, but that doesn't mean that I can immediately see a solution. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm much closer to the windsurfer. You might say to me, Hugh, there's a wind squall coming your way. What are you going to do in two minutes' time? And I'll say, I don't know. I'll deal with it in two minutes' time when the squall arrives, right? I mean, because I really can't predict it. I, I, I'll try and stay on my board. That's what I'm going to try and do, mm. yeah? And one of the... Again, something I touch on in the book, we, we, are, we mislead ourselves when we think there should be a better policy to deal with all of this. And quite often the better solution is to say, let's stop thinking we need policies. <laughs> Why don't we just live the best way that we can today? And what kind of guidance do you need? Well, actually, I would suggest virtue is a pretty good guide. So consider that uh, something we haven't touched on, but another elephant in the room is the um, uh, the whole environmental thing, which is recently, it, it, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was the environment, and now it's all about CO2, which is kind of weird. It's all been narrowed down. Well, it's all about CO2. Um, and that, just that narrowing, instead of having a concern for the environment as a whole and the issues around pollution and you know, the consequences of industrialization or peculiar architecture. It's all about we've got to reduce the CO2. Now, regardless of whether you think that's a good or a bad idea, um, it's ridiculously narrow. If you simply focus on this very, whatever it is, trace gas, 0.04% of the atmosphere, and imagine that all the other things that happen when you're trying to control that are less important that's just a massive delusion. Uh, it, it, it's quite clear that there are enormous, what, what people used to talk about a lot, externalities to the pursuit of CO2 reduction. Right? So there are many routes we can go there, but let me just say, well, how about this as a solution? How about the old-fashioned virtue of thrift? Why don't you just be thrifty? Instead of saying, I need to get a new car every two or three years, why not just keep your old car? I mean, that's definitely more efficient in terms of the carbon footprint. It's also kind of more efficient in many other ways as well. I mean, it, it, these are very simple things to do. You know, people talk about oh, recycling, got to re reuse your plastic bags and so on. My great aunts, <laughs> they used to take the paper bags from vegetables and iron them and stick them in a drawer. They would reuse paper bags, for goodness sake, right? Um, so, you know, there's a lot of good old-fashioned solutions to genuine life problems that people have rushed past because they've got this brand new thinking and this clever, clever education and these new ways of thinking. They think, they, ha, we're going to fix it now. So they oversimplify and they also overlook that we already have some very sound ideas that have been passed down, that have been misunderstood and can be rediscovered that will help us live better with each other. Yeah, and it's funny, they, they do say now, well, people like Toby say, not the mainstream, that the best thing you can do is keep your old car. Electric cars have proved to be not the thing. The batteries and so on, they're immensely wasteful, blah, blah. Actually, just keeping your old car is the best environmental move. Thrift, as you say. Interesting. Um, what about the fact that you mentioned the sort of Western world a bit? You're in... Vietnam, 
and I wonder mm. if there's a particular reason for that, or I wonder if it gives you a different overview or perspective because I often ask on this podcast one of my favorite questions is is Britain finished because so many people feel like it is here and I wonder as someone who's moved out maybe that was why you moved what's your what is being in Vietnam how does that change your perspective well let me give you two things well I was in it was in the UK just a few weeks ago I was mostly in London and that was very odd because I hadn't been around for a while and the whole of London is semi-deserted. Um, it's like, the whole thing is like a sleepy Sunday afternoon, but with traffic jams. So they managed to keep traffic jams, but the, the pavements are half empty. The restaurants are 90% empty. Places that used to be jammed, you just walk in, get a table, no problem at all. The only place I had to queue, two places I queued. One was Duana's, which is a wonderful, very, very good vegetarian restaurant, very good value near Euston. And the other was in Primark, which is like about cheap clothing. And I queued for over half an hour in Primark. Everywhere else, anything you wanted. Super overstaffed coffee shops with super expensive coffee. Um, and emptiness. It's, it's completely unsustainable. All the, the those, uh, in, in retail terms, if it carries on like that, London's going to look like Hartlepool in five years. It'll just be have shuttered. It, all the high streets are going to be shuttered. It's it, it's it's the phony war, if you like. So that's that's a comment on London, Vietnam. Uh, wonderful place. Uh, the economy grows. People get on with life. They just do stuff. And back to um, back to the issues that we we talked about earlier around, you know, culture wars and and wokeness and whatever. There's a great deal of emphasis in the West on, you know, my true self. You know, I, I identify as this or uh, what I really am is, is uh, you, know, you know, I'm a category. You know, I'm white or black or I'm Asian or Hispanic and I'm male or female or bisexual or whatever it might be. You know, so the two things that people talk about a lot of the categories and the other is this kind of unique value of the self. You know, who are you to tell me who I am? Because I know who I am. Yeah. And... And if I identify as X, Y, or Z, then you have to respect that. It's down to me who I am, right? And you realize how cultural that is when you come to Vietnam, because in Vietnam, the, you, the word that I use to refer to myself depends on the person to whom I am talking. There is no I, right? If I'm a little bit older than you, I'm Anne and you're M. If, it's, if you're a little bit older than me, you're Anne and I'm M. If you're the age of my dad, but, ye, but his younger brother, you'd be Chu, and so on and so on and so on. So built into the language is not just something that's very relational, but it means that myself is relational. So in the book, I point out that the self is in fact an abstraction. You know, you can't, you, it's an idea, like the soul. You know, you can't pull it out of the body and say, look, here's myself, here's my soul. Right? It's an abstract, it's a way of talking about ourselves, you see. <laughs> but um, in, in oral, in, in, in country, in societies that don't have literacy, they don't have a modern notion of the self either. You, you, and there's some lovely research, you know, some guy was asked, you know, Tell me about yourself. Who are you like? And he said, well, I can't, 
I don't know, you can't tell me. Ask one of my mates. I can't tell you about me. I can't see me. Um, and there's lots of wonderful stories like that. Read the book. Um, but the, 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 so yeah, Vietnam is, is, is very, very wonderful. Um, and uh, it's a good, it's sufficiently different for us to see how, how profound are the cultural soups within which we live. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, so it, it's about, it's a relational approach. I knew there was no I in team. Turns out there's no I in Vietnam as well. I've, I've learned something today. Um, so that's very interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that was, well, why would I know? Never been to Vietnam. Um, interesting you think London's empty as well. I mean, I, it doesn't feel that empty being here when I'm trying to do things. But if you've been away and come back post-COVID, I, I could see what you might say that. Yeah, I mean, and certainly there are a lot of shuttered up shops where I am. And I do agree about the high street. Um, so in another podcast with James Delimpole, you said a few things. You said that Vietnam was a certain way until 2020. So maybe we could touch on the COVID stuff, which you, I know you briefly mentioned at the start, because you also said, mm. I think, to James that 2020 was the end of the Enlightenment, which is very interesting. So you saw, you saw the lockdown era as the end of the Enlightenment. What did that mean? Well, um, I'm... I'm not sure whether the lockdown ended the Enlightenment or as the Enlightenment fell to pieces, lockdown arose. Right. So, as we all know, correlation is not causation, yeah. Nick. But um, uh, what I would say is that the, the Enlightenment was, the, was essentially the rise of the, of the use and the recognition of the power of, the, of rationality. Let, let's just use logic and look at things as they are, right? And that's great. Um, there's a good argument, actually, that, that really the, the, the beginning of the end for the Age of Enlightenment was 1927, which was when Gödel published his Incompleteness Theorem, which, which very briefly says that you cannot have a formal logical system with an arithmetic function which is both consistent and complete. In other words, if you have a formal logical system with an arithmetic function, the sort of thing that runs your computer, right, Either there will be true things that cannot be proven, so it's incomplete, or if you prove all the true things, you will also prove things that are not true, paradoxes. So if you want to get all the true statements, you're also going to have things proved which are not true. Now that really is the ultimate limit of rationality. The, um, the beginning of the end philosophically speaking, I would argue, would, would definitely be the postmodernists because they identified the same problem that Plato identified, which is that you cannot control the meaning of written words. They're saying, you know, the, the, Derrida called it différence, you know, that the way you read the words and the way I read the words is different. So, yes, they identified the problem, but their proposed solution, or at least their answer, was 100% wrong. They said, you know, because the words cannot be pinned down to mean exactly one thing, that means that they can mean many different things, which means that there are many different truths. Well, that's nonsense, right? There is only reality, which is seriously complex, and mostly we don't understand it. But that doesn't mean that it's not a certain way. Reality is definitely a certain way. I mean, below minus 273 
degrees centigrade, nothing moves. That's the nature of reality. You know, that we can't play with that. That's reality. And there are many other issues. Reality isn't simple, as I mentioned earlier. It's fractal, and the way we see it is a function of us. What we see is just one version of how you can see things. It's not that we grasp reality, but reality itself is not dependent on the words that we use to describe it. Our understanding of it most definitely is. So, so it's a bit of a philosophical rant there. I shall try and get back to wherever I started. Um, yeah, the age of reason. So, brilliant. Really, really helpful. We got the upside, and then diminishing returns set in. Because what happened was that as they, as they identified the value of reason, oh no, we've had a power cut. Um, as they identified the value of reason, the other values got overlooked. Of emotional understanding and physical understanding. Ah, okay. Um, Nick, we had an exciting power cut there. I don't know if... Okay, we had a slight power cut issue there. Hugh is in Vietnam in the middle of a storm, and so you got the authentic Vietnam experience. It suddenly cut off due to a power cut, just as you were sort of halfway through explaining the Enlightenment to us, Hugh. <laughs> and, and then we were endarkened, which kind of is <laughs> all very synchronistic. And indeed, I was talking about uh, the, the, the diminishing returns of, of in the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment was, the, was essentially the prioritizing of reason, and we got a huge benefit out of that. But then, what, as reason became more and more central to people's thinking, uh, the other elements, or the other ways of knowing and the other ways of feeling and understanding the world, began to be overlooked, just forgotten. Um, and as Joni Mitchell quite brilliantly put it, you know, you don't, look, don't know what you've got till it's gone. And what we lost was essentially emotional education and emotional understanding alongside a certain physicality of learning. So, whereas an oral tradition teaches through stories and communicates through stories and remembers through stories and meets and greets through stories, the rational uh, way of thinking used theory, explanation, lessons, writing, and the emotional element atrophied, the emotional education atrophied, uh, physical education atrophied, so that by which I don't mean just jumping up and down in the gym, I mean uh, working with your hands, I mean apprenticeship, I mean doing things for yourself. So as we got machines to do things for us, we did less with our own bodies. And then, weirdly, we started treating our own bodies like machines. So famously, uh, Taylorism, which was essentially early time and motion studies. This this chap looked at uh, early factories and worked out that if he told people exactly what to do, they'd become more efficient. In other words, making the men and the women behave more and more like machines. That gave rise to the production line, um, you know, the Ford's famous Model T Ford production line. And it's it was a brilliant way to make cars. So people thought, well, that's a brilliant way to make cars. Let's do everything else like that as well. We Let's prefabricate houses. Let's teach people like that. Let's treat people like that. And so 
gigantism, centralization, control, you know, the notion that everything can be made and like a machine and treated like a machine, which is very rational and sensible and goal-oriented, um, became more and more and more dominant. And the weirdness, the fractality, the humanity, the emotional integrity and the emotional depth silted up. And so now we have a lot of people with vast amounts of knowledge, but very, very little emotional understanding, very little depth to their being. And so they get lost and upset and frightened and are easily frightened by, you know, the absurdities of the, of the COVID era. So in that sense, that, and come back to my point, that, that COVID is, is the consequence, if you like, of the overvaluation of rationality and the undervaluation of the heart and the hips. I have a, you know, a three-way teach. I teach head, heart and hips. They're equally important. And we got stuck in our heads and we've come undone because of that. Hmm. All right. So there's, there's a lot there I wanted to ask about. Um, yes, we definitely became over-reliant on experts. And there was this absurdity where I could see that the safe and effective treatment, as I call it, for YouTube purposes, was not necessary for me. I could see that masks were silly. I wore one three times total, as I've often said, once in a friend's small business because the police kept visiting and he was paranoid. I didn't want to shut it down. And twice with a very insistent GP, I was like, okay, well, I want to get seen, so fine. And I never wore it on the train or the supermarket and so on and so on. Obviously nonsense, but so many people fell for it or, or, or bought into, and I'm not saying the whole thing was a scam before everyone shuts me down, but the, they bought into these, these questionable solutions, whereas I could see they're silly. And people say, well, how could you see that and you weren't an epidemiologist? And Andrew Doyle on here said, although he was thinking we should try a targeted protection approach, he didn't think he could have an opinion on the medical side, whereas I never agreed with that. I thought, as a person who's been alive a few decades, I can have a look at this and, and make, a, make an overall judgment in the way you say, a kind of holistic judgment or whatever word we'd use that sounds a bit new age, but I can just make a, a synthesis. And Scott Adams claimed that what the skeptics were doing, as he called them, the anti-vaxxers, was, was using a basic heuristic of don't trust the state and don't trust big pharma. I know he, he conceded that's not a bad heuristic, although I would say it's also a simplification of what we were doing. Or it, it's, not, it's not exactly what I was doing, although it, I do agree with those two statements, but I was just forming a very complex, you know, you form it with your gut. You, t you said their head, heart and hips, which is interesting. I, th I think of the gut, I think of intuition, and I think in future, with the enteric brain, I may be proved right with science that the gut brain is, is very complicated and may, maybe more complicated than the cerebral brain. But I know that I look at this and, and, and make a decision and I go, yeah, and I'm so obviously, it was so obvious to me and people say, well, how can it have been? But because I've made a decision as a human using all those faculties rather than said, what should I do, Chris Whitty, which seems absurd to me. Well, I mean, I, I applaud your, your self, what do they call it, um, inner directed. I mean, you make your decisions. You don't do what other people tell you to do. I mean, I've been so used to disagreeing with people. It was kind of bizarre to watch all these people agreeing with, yeah, what did seem to me to be quite nonsensical. But you can take, you can break it down and, and, and see different little bits of nonsense. For example, protect the elderly. This notion that, you know, you, you shouldn't go and visit your granny in a care home, right? Because, you know, you might give her COVID, right? Do you know what, how long people 
on average, live when they go into a care home? I'm guessing it's not long. It's it's just under two years. That's right. the average. That's the me. I can't mean median average. Anyway, that uh, there's a paper on it. I cite it in my blog somewhere. The the point is, people in in care. Why are people in care homes? Because they're not capable of living their own life anymore. They're without support, right? Um, and they're going to die. I mean, that's the reality. Is they're going to die, and most of them will die within two years, right? So, well, what's valuable? If you, I mean, everybody knows they're going to die, right? You don't think, oh, Granny's going into care for a couple of years. Then she's coming out and she's going to you know, sail around the world and move with us to Australia. No, she's not. She's going to die, right? So, well, before she dies, what shall we do? I know. Let's just leave her in prison and wave at her from the other side. Well, it's just nonsense, isn't it? I mean, Granny, if she's not particularly compromised, isn't really going to notice whether you saw her yesterday or, you know, and, and, and how long she's been alive and... You know, it, it's all a bit of a mystery to her, and then she dies, right? So, well, why not give her a hug? Why not live in the moment and say, Granny, I love you. You're, you're, yeah, and, you know, some, my parents both demented to a certain degree before they left, and, you know, my, my mother, she really didn't know what was going on, but she did benefit from the emotional vibe around her. So if I visited her, she enjoyed my visit. I was well, very fortunate she wasn't in a home she managed to stay in her own home but I would go up you know every other weekend and I would say hello and take her out for lunch and we'd have fun and and that counts to me that's good stuff you know having fun seize the moment she might not remember it but the vibe carried on she'd still be a happy lady you know later on that day maybe the next few days and I enjoyed enjoying her and and the notion that there was some benefit you know because somebody might not die of COVID, you know, a few months earlier, and, and therefore we should make their life horrible <laughs> until they die. It's ludicrous, completely ludicrous. It doesn't matter whether you are terrified of COVID, whether you really believe it, you know, whatever your beliefs around it, that's a very, very bad strategy. It's a stupid strategy. And, and, and the same applies for, well, everybody knew that children are not at risk and closing the schools. And whatever you think about how dangerous COVID might be for older people, for people with sickness and so on. But closing schools was bonkers. <laughs> it's just so obviously nuts, right? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> and it's disturbing how many people, and we've talked about this on other podcasts, people tend to double down rather than admit they're wrong. And they've doubled down and they still think in the Times poll, for example, that we didn't lock down hard enough, especially young people strangely think this, which seems to be my best guess. It's tied to virtue. They want to prove that they care so much. And lockdown has become tied with caring in their minds. We care about others. So we think we need to lock down more in future and we're prepared to sacrifice ourselves. Uh, so young people say that more than anyone that we should lock down harder, which is absolutely insane to me. And um, still at this point, people say that. But maybe... I was just, I mean, I don't, I'm, I claim I just somehow knew, maybe you're saying that, maybe that would be deluded, someone might say, but you said an interesting thing to me, and I might have been applying this, you said the dominant orthodoxy is almost always wrong. Yes. So is that, well, is, yeah. that, is that just a good way of looking at it? Is that, is that why I was right? Because I just don't trust the orthodoxy. Well, I mean, the orthodoxy is necessarily wrong, because um, the orthodoxy is what is, is what is established to be right. Okay, so we know about how the progress of science is the progress where people go, oh, well, that's not quite right. You know, it's, that's, that's progress, literally progress. And as Karl Popper pointed out, you cannot predict it. 
Because if you could predict it, it would be implicit in what's currently present. So it wouldn't really be new. It wouldn't be progress at all. Right? Why else is orthodoxy wrong? Because orthodoxy is codified. Right? So I, I can write it down. I can explain it. Right? It's fixed. It's what I call cognitive inertia. In other words, we fix. This is the way things are. Right? Reality is always in movement, and it's always changing. Reality is fractal. Yeah? So nothing is perfect. It's everything's moving a tiny little bit. So, you know, the Earth goes round and round the Sun, the Moon goes round and round the Earth. It'll be that way forever. Well, no, it won't, actually. Eventually, the Earth will fall into the Sun. I mean, the, the, the movement is infinitesimal. You know, it's nothing to do with our lives or billions of years. But eventually, it, in other words, it's not a fixed, frictionless system that will... It's not an... What's the word? Um, perpetual motion, Right? It will all run down. Everything is always in movement. And depending on the scale, the movement may be trivial. I mean, the difference, the, the difference in the distance from the sun and the earth in my lifetime is effectively non-existent. Right? But everything changes. And people have known that forever. And different things change at different rates. Apart from... The orthodoxy. The orthodoxy gets stuck behind because it's limited by the capacity of the writer of the orthodoxy at his or her particular time. And it will fall, it will, it will be wrong every yeah. time. And that makes me think of the sort of notion of the science, which became <laughs> a way of, it, it was a sort of, it was a sort of misapprehension where, or deliberate misapprehension, where Every time a new scientific development comes along, it threatens the previous scientists, and they try and shut the person down. That's how it seems to me. Uh, you know, they get very threatened uh, a lot of the time, anyway. Whereas the science was all about saying, you oh, know, this is it. We have it locked in. You can't question it. Other scientists can't question it. So it was completely anti-scientific, and it was really a sort of deification of the of the orthodoxy. You couldn't question it, which was the sort of very antithesis of science. Would that be right? Yeah, but I and it was it was a lot of you know, midwits, a lot of stupid, frightened people in in positions of power that they had neither the competence nor the authority to wield correctly. I mean, these really are trivial people. And that was the other bizarre thing. I've never owned a television, so every time I look at one, I think, they're really weird, those people, you know. <laughs> um, but, I'm on it, um, sadly, but carry on. <laughs> yeah, but, well, bless you. But, I mean, honestly, television is um, is not a great thing. Um, and one of the things is it normalizes this appalling lack of thoughtfulness. It normalizes bite-sized um, trivia and, and passes it off as thoughtfulness. It's, I mean, that's why the, the long form of podcast is so great. We, we can talk and, and dip into things a bit further. But um, it, 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 in, back in the 70s, there were these talk shows where people used to really argue with each other and, and dispute and disagree and that's totally vanished now because of the um, chasing of the attention span and keeping everybody on the button and you know there are many things I could see here I'm going to pause for a second and say well what's the worthwhile direction the good people a friend of mine I was whinging about politicians and a friend of mine said Hugh no one with talent goes into politics and well, of course, why would you? If, you? if you've got friends or you're talented, 
why would you hang out with people like that? I mean, they're really not nice people. And I, I've worked for plenty of them. I had a business that we, we contracted to the government for 12 years. And the politicians generally are just people you wouldn't want to hang out with. There's an argument that people go into politics because they don't have any friends. But if you go into politics, people have to talk to you. So at least you get some social life, right? But if you've got good friends, why would you hang out with them? And if you can run a business, why would you hang out with the people in politics? Crikey. Like, you know, people with competence and talent go and do it. And so the same is true of scientists, right? Really good scientists, they're going and inventing stuff and, and, and exploring. It's the second, third, fourth, fifth rate ones who end up on government bodies, you know, pushing papers around and writing reports. I mean, how dull is that? If you're a really good scientist, you're not going to... You're not going to be on the government, whatever it is, you know, the MHRA or whatever. That's for failures. I feel slightly compelled to defend my mate David Frost, who was on the podcast. He was a very, very smart guy. I mean, you know, he got first yeah, in French and course. history. I, I listened and... to that one, Nick, and, and I thought he, uh, he, he's, you know, here I am generalizing like mad. There are people of competence and he's clearly a, a, a bright man. Um, and God knows what he's doing there. He's, he must have some talents and skills and depths of emotional integrity that are quite beyond me. I, I'd, I'd love to meet him, actually, and, and find out. But really, I mean, I met a lot of politicians, and I haven't met Lord Frostall. I, I, I listened to him, and I thought, well, there's a good chap. He should have been the prime minister. Actually, interestingly, you know, a friend of mine said, oh, who was it when Theresa May was got in? They said, oh, you know, Sunak's not going to get in because of... Because, um, you know, because of racial prejudice. And I said, what? What? <laughs> yeah, do, do you know who the favourite was when they had that, uh, they asked uh, the Conservative Party member, it's like Kemi Badenoch, mm. you know, who's of Nigerian origin and very obviously a, a black lady, right? And so she's a lady and she's black and she was top of the pops with the Conservatives. They wanted mm. her. It was the idiotic MPs who, who didn't get her. Now, again, it doesn't matter whether you're a Conservative or a Labour person, but the fact that the Conservatives didn't get the person they wanted is nuts. <laughs> yeah, and then they wanted Liz Truss as their other choice, and then she got. we saw what happened to her. Yeah, there's, there's a, there was a fallacy amongst the sort of North London extended blob people that I know that, oh, the Tories would be too racist to have seen. And I explained to them, I was like, I know all these people. They're not, they want Kemi, who's, who, yeah, I explained that to them, but they like this fancy idea of the racist Tories. But it, you're right. I mean, shout out to Andrew Bridge and, and Lord Frost, who we've had on the podcast, and my colleagues, Jacob Rees-Mogg and people like that. I think there are some smart people, but I generally, of course, I see your point. And you said something to me quite interesting. You, you said that, um, that, well, you also said on James's podcast that all their Christmases came at once with COVID. And you said to me that big farmer were doing big farmer. Governments promote mediocrity and the average person believes everything. I hope I'm getting that pretty much right. That's... <laughs> well, a um Okay, I, 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 my one line, I had a market research business for 12 years, so I literally met a cross-section of the UK population and less so internationally, but very much of the UK population. And my experience was people are kind and good and pretty damn astute about their own personal life, right? So the opposite of what you discover when you're a psychotherapist, by the way, where you think everyone's a bit weird and their parents are horrible. But it's a great balance, you know? You meet people and you go, oh, but they're nice, they're kind, they're helpful, and they're quite astute. But they tend to have, there are three very widespread problems. One is they're not very good at reading leaflets. We used to test leaflets, one of the things. What do you think that says? 
And actually, it's remarkable how people misunderstand writing that you put in front of them, or they pick a bit out and they don't get the rest of it. That's one interesting thing. The other thing is that, that generally they're misinformed and disempowered. And in my mind, the best way to... There's one device that will misinform and disempower people, and that is the television. It, it misinforms, not because it chooses to, but because it cannot help but do it, because everything has to have a short, tight angle for the requirements of the, uh, of the medium, and that is necessarily going to be less than uh, complete. And, and it um, disempowers people because they tend to think, well, you're on the television, that means, that means you must be clever and brilliant and wonderful and, and, and generally talented, and I'm not. I'm just sitting here receiving, doing nothing. I'm in my living room. I'm nobody. You are somebody. And the more you watch television, the more you think that. I don't think that because <laughs> I don't watch television. But commonly you would get this, this sense that, oh, you know, t t somebody once said to me, actually, said, you could be the next Jeremy Kyle. And I said, who? <laughs> <laughs> so Jeremy Kyle was, at that time, he, he was a daytime TV show host thing, right? I'd just been doing some market research. And I said, oh, well, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know that. I don't have a telly. And he looked at me, he said, you don't have a telly? That's my life, he said. <laughs> telly and my Xbox. And I, I, he, was, he was a young man, incredibly good looking, and um, just, he was, he was sort of concave. He, was, he just slumped. And I, I thought, crikey, that's, that's, a, that's not a great life, you know, TV and an Xbox. No, although in my case, I actually am talented and brilliant and happen to be on TV, but it is GB News, which is a kind of alternative to the sort of boring people who you're talking about, so I'm not going to take it as an insult. Um, Don't. Uh, but, I, but I do have to go soon because I've got to go and host and do some more bite-sized trivia on, as you call it, on TV. But um, and it's funny, by the way, with the people can't read leaflets because that takes us all the way back to literacy being the problem, which I still love, as the, uh, even though it's not exactly what you said, but I still love the idea that we, we need to go all the way back. Um, but is there anything we've missed out here? We've covered quite a lot and we've had storms and power cuts, but there's only one more thing I wanted to ask you about, which is um, I've got a quote here. Feel free to add anything. The book is The Bug in Our Thinking, by the way. So get that book. It's very interesting. And I'm going to complete it soon. And um, the only thing I didn't ask you about was you said something really interesting. You said, because you were talking about reality earlier, and you're saying reality is not subjective. There is a truth there. So the postmodernists are wrong. And you said at some point, what we need is to understand better what we already know. I think that might be in the book, actually. So yeah. any comment on that? Okay, I'm going to. The key thing there is truth, right? We we misunderstand truth. We tend to think truth, uh, you know, the truth is the same as reality. But actually, we're confusing things because the modern notion of truth arises from literacy. We say, look, here's this sentence. How do I know whether it's true or not? Okay, so we have this notion of the truth as you know, I don't know, some, some fantastic space out there where there's the truth about reality, okay? And it's fixed because, look, this sentence is either true or not true. But that's a very modern, post-literate notion of truth. In the old days, truth, before we could read or write, would be a moment of revelation or a moment of understanding. I'm talking to you and you go, oh, I see what you mean. 
boom, truth used to happen. It was a little moment, if you like, of understanding. Understanding is an event. It's what we do. And then we stop and go back to our more trivial way of thinking. So one of the deep currents that misleads us and has you know fuels the culture wars is the people thinking there's a truth out there and it belongs to me <laughs> and that's just a misunderstanding truth is when we when uh, it's just this moment where we go oh my goodness that's the way the world is right and it's not universal it's not huge because we don't have that much perception uh, then there are a whole other world as you know the truths of mathematics and so forth but the thing about maths you need to remember is that you're never, ever, ever in your entire life ever going to meet the number two. You'll meet two things. But the world of mathematics is not the world that we live in. So the kind of absolute notion of truth that we've taken from mathematics doesn't really belong here. It belongs in mathematics, don't get me wrong, for sure. But the world we live in ain't like that. All right. Very interesting. There's so much, so much in there, and it suddenly reminded me of a part in the book about <clears throat> objects and how uh, AI struggles to even understand what objects are. And uh, and and you know, John Peterson talked about we understand objects by their utility. And I suddenly started thinking about that. A lot of what you talk about is that our maps of the world are, are not the world, right? Is that fair? That's absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's been a big theme today. I think I've covered everything. I mean, I want to come back when I've read the book uh, fully. Maybe I'll read it twice and come back and do a second one if you want. But um, because there's so much that I think we, we could ask so much more. I didn't even ask you if you're an atheist or if you believe in God. I've got so many questions I could ask you, but um, ho- hopefully the listener will enjoy it because we co- covered so many things. Anything else you want to add apart from buy the book? Where can people get the book, by the way? Um, the best way is through my website. Um, if you bung that on the, the whatever it is, show notes or whatever, it's hughwillborn.com, H-U-G-H-W-I-L-L-B-O-U-R-N.com. That's where you can get the book. Um, I, you know, I wish I'd told a few more stories. I, I threw a few in, but it often happens in, in you know, these discussions. We get off into stuff which I think is a wee bit philosophical or geeky. So I hope that's uh, interesting. Um, there are lots of stories in the book, and the stories uh, uh, do a lot of the work that I cannot do. So uh, that's a good reason for buying it and reading it. Well, I'm sure people will like the philosophical stuff on our podcast. But yeah, definitely get the book. And where can they find you, Hugh, uh, other than the book and the website? Well, again, through my website. That's the, basically, that's the, the contact point. Um, I'm actually the only person, as far as I know, in the world who's called Hugh Wilborn, which on, on, um, on the internet is a great advantage. Yeah. And perhaps one little byproduct of this entire expedition is that people might spell my surname properly at the end of it. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, W I L L B O U R N. It is little, little uh, unconventional. Yeah, much yeah, like yeah. you, I suppose. In general. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and we didn't even get on to Paul McKenna because that, maybe that's not that interesting. It's a long time ago, but it's just quite interesting that you you worked on all these Paul McKenna books, and we didn't even mention that. But it's pretty interesting. Well, we'll have to meet again, Nick, when you yeah. finish the book. All right, let's do that. All right, thanks, Hugh. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> <laughs>